We turn now to our scripture lesson for the sermon this morning, which is in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, as we continue our study of this letter of the Apostle Paul. We come here to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and we'll read today the first six verses of that chapter. This is the word of God as he gave to Paul to write to the church at Corinth. So we know that we have the infallible, the inspired, the therefore inerrant word of God. So even as we have sung and read his word today, we read it once again and let's attend with reverence to its reading for our instruction this morning. Uh, 1 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 6. Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things and we for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. And thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us this time. May he bless its reading and its exposition and its hearing for us today. You may remember, for those of you who were here at the time, that chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians began with the words, Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me. In this section of the letter, the apostle is answering questions. He's answering some questions that the Corinthian Christians have written to him about various topics. In chapter 7, we saw that he dealt with some questions regarding marriage and singleness and widowhood and so on. And in chapter 8, he now deals with questions regarding the problem or the, the situation of whether it's okay to eat meat from animals that had been sacrificed to idols. Is that acceptable to do that? Or should Christians avoid such meat so as not to be implicated in the worship of the false gods? Well, Lord willing, next week uh, we'll get into Paul's answer to those questions about whether it's okay or not to eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols. But before we do that, today, I want us to handle what Paul has to say in his preface, if you will, uh, to that answer. Before talking about the meat offered to idols, he deals with the matter of the idols themselves. What are they? We find as we use scripture to interpret scripture, that on the one hand, the gods, you might say in quotes, Worshipped by the heathens are no gods at all. But on the other hand, we're told that the heathens sacrifice to demons. Demons pretend to be the gods of the nations in order to garner worship for themselves and, of course, to distract from the worship of the one who should be worshipped, of Yahweh, of the true God. There are beings who in the Old Testament are sometimes called gods, as we translate the word Elohim into English, or sons of God, the Benai Elohim. Heavenly beings. And they come before the Lord 
in chapters like the first and second chapter of Job. Spirits created to serve the Lord. Now some of these spiritual beings we see as we read the scriptures are in rebellion against the Lord God. They desire to see him dishonored. They want to be worshipped in his place. But in terms of a God, as we would put it with a capital G, there are no capital letters, by the way, in the the ancient Hebrew or the Greek that the New Testament was written in, or maybe we would say it's all capital letters, as we would consider it now. But in terms of a God with a capital G, as we would put it, who is to be worshipped, there's really only one. Only one creator to whom we owe our worship because he made us and he sustains us. And that's the main point of this passage. There is one true God. If by God we define the one who is to be worshipped. Paul also teaches several lessons related to that fact that there is one true God in this passage. One of them is that Jesus is that God. Another is that God is Trinity. He doesn't flesh that out in this passage particularly. Here Paul clearly presents God as having more than one person in the Godhead. As we pull other scriptures together, we see that the number of those persons is actually three. Paul's teachings here fit seamlessly with that fact. A third thing we see is that love of the true God is proof that you are known by him and that you have true knowledge of him. The fourth thing we see is that uh, idols, on the one hand, are nothing. And then fifth, we'll see, on the other hand, demons like to impersonate those false gods. So let's start with the main point. There is one true God. Verse 4. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. We'll get more into the matter of eating things offered to idols next time, Lord willing. But for today, notice that Paul says an idol is nothing in the world, but rather there is no other God but one. Deuteronomy 4.39, Therefore, know this day, as we read a little while ago, and consider it in your heart that the Lord himself is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath, there is no other. So there we go. Case closed. There is one God. Of course, it depends on how we're using the word in the ancient Hebrew. But in terms of a being to be worshipped, how many other gods are there? There are no others. The Lord, Yahweh, is God and there is no other. In verse 6 of our reading here in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we for him and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. Notice the matter at hand here is the term God in the sense of a being who is to be worshipped. Whom, To whom should we give our worship? Who should we worship? Paul makes a point of writing about the Lord as creator in verse 6, and you'll notice that in the Psalms that we sang this morning, in Psalm 95 and Psalm 96, that, that uh, when compared to the other gods, he's above the other gods in Psalm 95. There, there are no other gods. The heathen gods are mere idols in Psalm 96. For why the Lord the heavens made. Right? There, 
There is only one God who has made the heavens and the earth. And so Paul here makes a point of writing about the Lord as creator in verse 6. We, we owe him worship because he alone has made us and all other things. We cannot point to any other being, no matter how powerful that spirit might be, and say, he made us. No, only the Lord made us. And the Lord made those beings as well. In verse 1 we see he's talking about, Paul here is talking about offering sacrifices, acts of worship. Who, to whom do you give your acts of worship? In verse 5 he says there are so-called gods whom other people worship, to whom they offer sacrifices. But for us, he says in verse 6, there is one God. We know that there is one God to be worshipped. One being to whom we owe that worship. Exodus 20, verses 2 through 3. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Now that doesn't simply mean that you can worship other gods as long as they're not before me, as long as I'm the best. As long as as I'm the one you worship first. No, it means in my presence. And where is the Lord's presence? Everywhere. There's no place where he is not. So we must have no other gods, no other objects of our worship in his presence. That means anywhere. Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6. It goes on to forbid the making of images and bowing down to them. So again, that's worshiping an idol. No other god, and certainly no idol, is to be worshipped. Only the Lord, only Yahweh. uh, For he alone is the maker of heaven and earth. We must worship only him and only as he prescribes, as the second commandment tells us. So not only does it forbid the worshiping of other gods as idols, but it forbids the making of idols for the worship of the true God. So idols, whether of other so-called gods, or even if it is claimed that they are representing the true God, are excluded from our worship. Only our Creator, of whom are all things, and through whom are all things, is to be Worshipped, Paul tells us. And in verse 6, when Paul says, and we for him, he's emphasizing we were not made by any other God, nor were we made for any other God. So it's not as if the Lord made us and then said, now you can also worship these other beings I've made. No, he made us for him and not for anyone else. We were not created to worship any other so-called God. We were created to worship the Lord alone. He alone is maker of all things. He alone is self-existent, and so to him alone belongs worship. As Exodus 3.2 tells us, Moses uh, tells us there, and the angel of the Lord, by the way, that's also showing the multiplicity of the plurality of personhood in the Godhead. Even uh, rabbis before the time of Christ understood this to some extent. Uh, They would speak of there being at least what they called two powers in heaven. There was the Yahweh who sent and the Yahweh who was was sent by Yahweh. So it's Yahweh, it's the Lord, uh, but there's this 
one person who sent does the sending and this other person who gets sent, and that's the angel of the Lord who speaks as the Lord uh, in many places in the Old Testament, and this is one of them in Exodus 3.2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, to Moses, in a flame of fire in the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. One thing that tells us is God does not need fuel. He exists of himself. If he appears as a fire, that fire doesn't need to burn up the bush, right? It doesn't need to fuel itself. It's self-existent. In Exodus 3.14, he reveals his self-existence in the very name that he speaks to Moses. He says, I am who I am, or I am that I am. When people ask you who sent you, say, I am sent you. The self-existent one. The one who exists of himself. There's nothing contingent about his existence. He doesn't depend on anything else. He is Yahweh, the self-existent creator of all things. There are several other lessons we find there that Paul then touches on as he tells us that there is one true God to be worshipped. And in this passage, he touches on several other things related to this fact that there is this one true God. Number one, Jesus is that God. Notice that in verse 5, Paul refers to beings who are worshipped by mankind as both gods and lords. So those are terms that are being used for the same kind of being, for one who is worshipped. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords... He then says in verse 6, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord, it's a word that's being used equivalently here as a synonym for God, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. So in this context, therefore, God and Lord are not terms speaking of different categories of beings, but they're different ways of speaking of the same category of beings, beings who are to be worshipped or who are worshipped. For us, he says, there is only one, one God for us to worship. And he is the Father and he is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the same, therefore, as the Lord we must worship. <coughs> Excuse me. All things were made by the Father, of whom are all things, Paul says, and all things were made by Jesus Christ, through whom are all things. Paul is saying in a few words, the same thing that we find in John verses, or John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So there you've got somebody who is a person, and he's with God, and he is God at the same time. There you've got, the only way that makes sense is if there's more than one person in the Godhead. John says he was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. And that awkward sentence, as I've mentioned to you many times before, is awkward on purpose because it's, it's leaving us no room to think that this is a being who was created by God and then created all other things. No, there's nothing that was made that wasn't made by him. If he was made and then made other things, which is what the Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, teach or the ancient Aryans taught, well, then that, that would mean that there was something that was made that he didn't make. He didn't make himself. But anything that was made was made by him. So he must be the uncreated creator. And when Paul says of Jesus through whom we live, 
He's saying essentially the same thing that John says in John 1 verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Our very existence originates in the person who came into the world as Jesus Christ. He created all things. He upholds all things. Hebrews 1 verse 3 tells us Christ is upholding all things by the word of his power. That's something that only God does. Only Yahweh does that, and he is that same person, or that same being, I should say. He's a person of the Godhead. Any life we have in this world, any existence we have, any being we have, is totally dependent on him, and he is dependent on no one else. Jesus is the Lord God. He is the one true God. A second thing that we see connected to this fact that there is one true God is that the one true God is a trinity. Now, that's not fully fleshed out in this passage, but we do see certainly that there are at least two persons of the Godhead mentioned in this passage. One, There's one God who exists in three persons, we find, as we pull the scriptures together. Now, uh, today, I, I could spend an entire sermon preaching that to you, so I, I won't give you the whole argument for why we understand God is three in one. But here Paul makes clear in verse 6 that the Father and the Son are the same God. They are, they are distinct in their personhood from one another. The Father didn't become a man. He didn't take the sins of his people upon himself and die on a cross. The Son did that. The Word did that. There's a distinction between the persons and what they do. But they're one God in essence or substance as we use the, the theological language. Not substance in the sense of there being material that he's made of, but uh, essence is probably the better word, and that's a good translation of the Greek terminology. Uh, there's there are one God who is essentially one God. In being, he is one God, but in personhood, he's three. And that's hard for us sometimes to grasp because it's not something within our experience. Notice how in Verse 6, there is one God to be worshipped, but that Paul presents him as both Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 13, 14, he teaches that the Holy Spirit is also to be worshipped as that God, that same God, when he pronounces the benediction, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, which is his typical shorthand for the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. And I haven't done a lot of the research myself, but I'm told by some that, that uh, when I mentioned that there were pre-Christian rabbis who even sometimes spoke of there being two powers in heaven, there was the Yahweh who did the sending and then the Yahweh who was sent, the angel of the Lord, uh, they also, some of them said, and what about this spirit of God we keep reading about all through the Old Testament? Is that also not a power in heaven? In other words, is that also not another person of the Godhead of Yahweh? So the, the Trinity is more clearly revealed in the New Testament, but it isn't as if God didn't give any hints of that at all in the Old. Hence, Jesus tells his disciples to baptize in one name of three persons, in the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, The one God, the one true God, is Trinity. The third thing we see here in this passage related to that is that love of the true God is proof 
that you are known by him and thus truly know him. If you have a true love for God for who he really is. As we'll see next time, if God allows one problem related to the matter of eating meat sacrificed to idols, is that some believers were stronger in their knowledge than others were. They know that meat sacrificed to idols is just meat. Why? Because the idols are nothing. Right? Because the idol is nothing, it has no power, it represents no real God. Therefore, animals sacrificed to it, the meat from animals sacrificed to it, in that sense, is no different than meat that came straight from the farm or was killed by a hunter. Eat it if you want. Right? That's one of Paul's statements. But be thinking when you eat it, is is it, how is it going to affect your brother in Christ? Others were troubled in conscience because they didn't want any association with the worship of false gods. Remember, a large number of the Christians in Corinth had been pagans before they came to faith in Christ. And they wanted nothing to do with their former pagan life. So they refrained from eating meat altogether because they didn't know if it had come from the altar of a false god. Or maybe they abstained from meat that was at the public festivals or sold in the city market because they knew that likely had come from the altar of a false god. Paul says to the stronger here, to those who have more knowledge, more confidence in their knowledge of these things, your knowledge is less important than your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 1, now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge, Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Knowledge without love can make you arrogant. Can make you look down your nose at other people who don't have that same knowledge and can't seem to grasp the things that you've grasped. He says in verse 2, And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. So Think about how much more we have to learn as Christians when we think that we know plenty of things. You know, we'll be spending an eternity in the world to come, learning more and more of the glories of God. We'll never run out of things to learn. If when I'm six trillion years old, I still won't know everything, how much could I possibly know at 50 years old right now? For the Christian, the greater one's knowledge, the more he knows how much he does not know. There are things we will not grasp until the world to come, and then we'll keep learning and grasping more things. And then our knowledge won't be corrupted by sin, but even now our ability to learn is corrupted by our brokenness. So how much can I possibly know? There are things I can be really confident of because they're quite plain in God's word, and God says so. And that's why I'm confident of them, because God says so, and I'm sure that that's what God is saying. But I need to be careful about not becoming arrogant about the knowledge that I have. Christian knowledge should make us humble, not arrogant. Verse 3, but if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. If you have a genuine love for God, for who he really is, it must be that he has known you covenantally, that he has changed your heart. Because otherwise the human heart is desperately wicked. Only the God-changed heart can truly love God. So every believer, not just the more knowledgeable ones, 
is known by God and knows God for who he really is to some extent. Such a changed heart brings knowledge of God. 1 John 2, verses 4 through 5, John says, He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. As we find that we're being sanctified by God, being changed over time, becoming more righteous, we know God more and more deeply. The changed heart produces acts of obedience to God's word, which is evidence that we are known by God and that we truly know him and are getting to know him more and more. So John says in 1 John chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, that such love and knowledge generates not arrogance, but love of one's Christian brothers and sisters. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. Love of God and of his people is clear evidence that you are covenantally known by God and that you have a true knowledge of God for who he really is. The fourth thing we see here in this passage is related to the fact that there is one true God is that idols, on the one hand, are nothing. In verse 4, Paul just plainly says that We know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. The word there for world is, is cosmo, from cosmos. So he's talking about the universe. Idols are empty. False gods, as they are believed in by the pagans, don't exist. In Acts 19.26, a, a pagan man expresses his outrage that Paul teaches, quote, they are not gods which are made with hands. He was an idol maker. And he was outraged that Paul would say, your idols aren't gods. Psalm 115, verses 4 through 7. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. You can make an idol that looks like a person or an animal or something, but it can't work like a person or an animal. We know of some cases in the ancient world where there were uh, some mechanistic devices that would uh, make the idol appear to move. It would move mechanically, but it didn't move of its own free will and accord. If an idol seemed to speak, it was a priest speaking through a tube behind it or something into its mouth. But the idol couldn't actually speak. So the scripture says these things are dumb and incapable of moving. Psalm 96, verses 4 through 5, For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for the gods of the peoples are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Deuteronomy 439 again, therefore know this day and consider it in your heart that the Lord himself is God in the heaven above and on the earth beneath there is no other. The prophet Isaiah actually makes fun of crass idolatry. In Isaiah 44 verses 14 through 17, he laughs at the man who cuts down a tree and carves part of it into an idol and uses the rest of it to heat his home and bake his bread. And then thinks that that part of it that he carved into a god is going to do something for him. 
So idols, on the one hand, are nothing. They're empty. They have no power. But the fifth thing we learn here in this passage and in connected passages, on the other hand, demons like to impersonate those false gods. And so you notice in this passage that Paul talks about gods as being real and not being real at the same time. This is the being real part of it. There are those spiritual beings that pretend to be these gods. They can convince people to worship them by lying signs and wonders. In verse 5, Paul speaks of an apparently real being, or apparently real beings, when he says, uh, for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, so that can't be an idol, idols don't exist in heaven, right? And he says, as there are many gods and many lords. So notice, again, this can't be mere idols, which Paul says are nothing. Idols exist on earth, but... They don't exist in heaven. They're not gods and lords. So Paul here is referring to some facts that we find in the Old Testament. In Hebrew, the type of being that Yahweh is, is described by the word Elohim. Uh, we, and he is commonly called that. Elohim, we usually translate that as God with a capital G. It's actually a plural noun. And when we translate the plural noun is a singular because the grammar around it is, is forcing us to. Uh, it God with a capital G, right? When a, a Hebrew noun is plural, but the verb is conjugated to the singular, for example, or the grammar around it is, is, is causing us to understand it's a singular noun, it indicates that we're talking about the greatest thing of that category. The other glaring example of that in the Old Testament is the behemoth. The word behemoth, behemoth, actually just means cattle or big land animals. It's a plural. But when it's used in the singular, it means the biggest land animal. So when the Lord spoke to Job about the biggest land animal, he's saying, could you tame this thing? In the Hebrew of the Old Testament here, are, are many, uh, there are many beings that are called Elohim. So we might say gods with a small g. But only one god is the biggest of that category, Yahweh. He's the self-existent one. To keep it short, these gods, or these sons of God, as they're also called in places like Job 1, 6, and 2, 1, these are spiritual, heavenly beings created by the Lord, what we commonly in the New Testament language call angels. And as we uh, see in places like Daniel uh, chapter 10, it appears that he perhaps assigned some of these beings to watch over the nations, uh, in Daniel 10.13, there's a spirit called the prince of the kingdom of Persia. In Daniel 10.20, there's a prince of Greece. And it's clear that these spirits are not uh, in accord with the Lord. They're in rebellion against him. They're actually stopping the prince of the kingdom of Persia, actually tries to stop an angel from coming and talking to Daniel. And he's only able to do that when uh, Michael comes and helps him, who's called the prince of your people. So God made these little g-gods, these sons of God, these heavenly beings, and some of them have rebelled against him. And these rebels are otherwise known as demons. There's a lot more biblical proof in that, but I won't take the time here. They, they desire to be worshipped in the place of Yahweh. Deuteronomy 32.17, they sacrifice to demons, not to God, to gods they did not know. So notice the demons and gods there are equated. To new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.20, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons. It seems that Satan might like to pretend, in particular, to be the king of the false gods, which is usually the god of storms. Uh, Jesus 
In Matthew 12, 24, equates the storm god of the ancient Canaanites, Baal Zebul, Baal the prince, which is also known as Baal Hadad in ancient times. He's the most common Baal you encounter in the Old Testament. And Jesus equates him with Satan in Matthew 12, 24. In Revelation 2.13, he refers to the city of Pergamos, also known as Pergamum or Pergamon, as the place where Satan's throne is, and most Bible scholars consider that to be a reference to the altar of Zeus, which kind of looked like a throne in that city. Zeus was a storm god. Baal was a storm god. Baal Hadad was a storm god. Satan and his demons like to pretend to be the false gods of the nations. There is however, only one true God. There's one self-existent Lord who is to be worshipped. We do not owe our worship to any other being fallen or righteous. Worship the Lord God alone. Jesus is that same God, that self-existent Lord, so believe on Him. Serve Him. Obey Him. The one true God is one God in three persons. The God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that is the only God to be worshipped by Christ's people. Love Him for who He really is. If you do, that demonstrates a God-changed heart, and such love means that you are both known by God and that you have a growing knowledge of the true God. Reject all idolatry. Idols are nothing. They are empty imaginings of men, so they're of no use in worshipping the true God. They only distract you from it. If there is anything to them, it's merely that Satan and his servants like to pretend to be these false gods. So flee from vain idols. Worship the one true God. Let's pray. Lord, we worship you who alone is God. Help us to worship the one who alone exists as the eternal God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Grant that we might grow in our knowledge of you and thereby in our love of you. As we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.